the Royal Australian Air Force in person, 1921 to 2021. Ad Astra Aviator. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McRae, OAM. More personnel retired from the Coffs Harbour area. Today, it's retiree Wing Commander Ken Mitchell, DFC. Ken kicked off his Air Force career flying Lincolns, Dakotas and Neptunes. He then totally changed his flying career when he was posted to fighters. This included flying Sabres in Malaysia during the Indonesian confrontation and in Ubon, Thailand during the Vietnam War. He then completed a tour on Mirages at 76 Squadron. In 1968, he was posted to Vietnam as a forward air controller, returning to fly Mirages again, including another tour in Malaysia. He then had a series of ground jobs in Air Force Office Canberra at Staff College and at the Joint Intelligence Organization. Ken joined Customs in 1984 to introduce three Nomad aircraft into service. After this, he bought a business in Coffs Harbour and finally retired there. Well, Ken, welcome and nice to have you uh, as part of the centenary of the Royal Australian Air Force. Oh, thank you. Why did you enlist back in 1959? Can you remember? Yeah, it was one of those boyhood dreams. Actually, I was in the backyard with mum and she was hanging out the washing in Adelaide and uh, a flight of Mustangs flew over and I was, and I was only about, well, I don't know, four, five. And I said to mum, I'm going to fly those one day. Yeah, that was 24 Squadron. So that, that's how it started. You've flown a variety of aircraft, Lincolns, uh, Sabres, Mirages. What was the Lincoln like? Tell us about the Lincoln. <laughs> I, I used to joke. I used to say I was powered by four uh, V12 Rolls-Royce Merlin engines. It's like flying four Spitfires at a time. Yeah, as far as memory is concerned, do you have a favourite? Well, the Mirage for, uh, for thrill, the AV-10 for working. Now, you've been involved in two very significant conflicts, the Indonesian confrontation with 77th Squadron and also in Vietnam in 1968. I want to dwell on Vietnam in a moment, but what do you recall about the Indonesian confrontation and your participation with the Royal Australian Air Force? Well, I was in 77th Squadron and we just got there as confrontation started. So uh, our job was to man the aeroplane on alert, uh, the Sabre, with cannon and sidewinder on alert, um, waiting for Indonesia to make a move. We, uh, we were there on alert all day, and at night the RAF javelins would come on alert, and they would be there for the night fight. What was the difference between the javelin and the Sabre? Oh, well, the javelin was a delta wing, high tail, twin engine aeroplane that was um, not not that you could really call it a fighter, I don't suppose, but as a, as a, a night platform launching missiles is probably probably all right. The best we had at the time, I suppose. Were you conscious uh, that you are in a war zone in, in, as far as the Indonesian confrontation is concerned, or, or you didn't even think about that? Oh, no, no, you were conscious of it. You were conscious of it because there'd be alerts. The uh, 
my wife Bernadette was a school teacher over at the RAF school on Penang Island and every so often the school would get a phone call saying little, little Aussies blow up today so they'd have to evacuate the schools and spend the rest of the day in the rubber plantation while they look for bombs in the schools so the, the threat was always there. I have spoken on a couple of occasions to people who've been involved in Vietnam and it's been a very brief chat about Vietnam in terms of their whole career. But I, I do want to dwell with you in, about Vietnam. Firstly, were you, were you posted there or did you volunteer to go there? What was the process of actually getting there, Ken? Um, well, I volunteered. And what was the motivation for that? Well, it was the, we were highly trained and it was the only war we had. So you went there in what role to begin with? Uh, I was a forward air controller and I was uh, posted to uh, Benoit and um, they decided because of my fighter experience I should fly the OV-10 because it was the new FAC aeroplane that uh, had just come into country and had done a trial and it turned out to be a very nice aeroplane for the role. Was that either the bird dog or the bronco or neither? The bronco. Well, did you have any experience in the bird dog as well? No. The bronco, what, what sort of aircraft was it? For those that don't understand aircraft. Uh, twin engine turboprop, carried bombs, rockets and guns. Zero, zero rocket seat ejection capability. Very maneuverable, just like a little fighter. Now, a forward air controller, what is that? I was posted to the 3rd Brigade of the 1st Division, the US Army Division, the, the big red one, and I was based at Lycay. And each brigade had a TAC, TACP, a tactical air control party, of about four or five people and about three aeroplanes. And we provided air support to that brigade when they were in the, in the field. And we flew every day. When our, our brigade was deployed, we had an aeroplane in the sky all day, every day, and on standby at night. Uh, when we got airborne, we listened out to the, on the command frequency. And of course, when there's a contact, when the grunts are in trouble, they call contact. That's the first word they utter. And as soon as you hear that, you know there is, someone's in trouble or about to be in trouble. Uh, so you get, try and get a grid reference and you, um, you'd fly over there as soon as you can. How dangerous? Well, can I describe an airstrike to you? I would love you to. Well, there's one particular one which uh, I was very proud of, if you like, because it, um, it, it, it was almost near perfection. Anyway, I was tooling around. I was on a VR mission and I got the call, contact uh, on the command frequency and I um, radioed back to the commander uh, where was he and throw smoke so he gave me a good reference and he threw smoke it turns out I was only uh, a couple of minutes away from him so I went over to him and I could see smoke but I saw two smokes and I said what color was your smoke and he said red and he said well you, I said you've got a yellow smoke 200 meters uh, to the west he said, that's not me. So I rolled in immediately and put a brace of rockets onto that smoke and around that smoke to stir them up because that was the VC or the NVA um, trying to confuse the situation, delaying my process. So I put a brace of rockets on them. And the ground commander yelled back and said, they're shooting at you. I said, oh, good. Well, I found them. So I immediately called for um, airstrikes, artillery, gunships, and the commander said he had uh, KIA and WIA killed and wounded 
and he needed uh, dust off, so I got dust off organised as well. Um, he, he reckoned he ran into a company battalion size NVA VC force and they were shooting the shit out of him because I could see the dust and the explosions and uh, they were shooting the shit out of him, yes. So I rolled in and put another brace of rockets uh, um, in front of him and to the side to try and relieve the pressure and at, by that time I'd organised the 105's artillery, 155's and 8 inch artillery and in Vietnam you could always almost get a parallel GT line. So these guys were looking north, they had an east-west line looking north, these are the friendlies. So I could bring artillery in parallel to them because you never bring artillery in over the top or in, into them because one round drops short and you've killed someone. Yeah. So I had the 105s going about 100, 200 metres, uh, the 155s about 300 metres and the 8-inch guns about f or 400 metres. And I was moving them around to his front. And at the same time we had the gunship coming in and I moved the artillery uh, north so the gunship could get in and do his job too. So we had this continuous barrage of stuff and every time I went in to mark a target uh, for the gunship then the uh, he'd keep saying this they're, they're shooting at you and I said oh yeah that's good. So eventually the TAC air turned up and, and that's a flight of uh, F-100 uh, F Sabres armed with uh, Nape Snake and uh, 20 Mike Mike. That's Napalm, HE, Hydrag bombs and 20mm cannon. So I told the uh, flight leader, I briefed him, told him I was shifting the artillery further north uh, but he was flying say 270 degree heading and he was parallel to the GT gun line and he said I'm happy, he said no sweat. So. I was keeping the artillery going while he was flying down parallel to the artillery coming in, letting go his napalm bombs and cannon uh, along the front of the sky, uh, this, this commander with his troops. He had a company of troops facing, he thought it was a battalion. So we, we at that time the, the dust off arrived. So I got them to come into the south and uh, they loaded up the dead and wounded, did a couple of trips and we kept this going until um, the, the contact virtually ceased and uh, after a while the contact did cease and we think that uh, that, that well we know they were treating to the northwest into Cambodia or towards Cambodia. At this time I noticed a, a chopper in my six and it was a brigade commander in his CNC chopper and I rang him up because I didn't have time to talk to him I was working on three radios talking to 14 people and uh, that was the first time I got to talk to him I said uh, you got anything to add he said no you have a control I've scrambled the ready reserve company to the uh, west to try and cut them off. So uh, the dust settled and uh, the Yank commander on the ground rang up and said, Sidewinder, I owe you a beer or three. And that was nice, except I don't drink beer. I didn't have the heart to tell him that. Ken, really, from what you've just described, the forward air controller not only has a very dangerous job, but you are key to the whole operation. You're virtually calling the shots. Yeah, when yes, in a contact when you when you were there and you took over, you you were the ringmaster of the of the shooting circus and or the bombing circus, and you were the ringmaster. So it just felt like you were playing an orchestra, and when it all goes off perfectly without friendly casualties, you know that you cause, and you don't often cause them anyway. Um, well, I never caused any. Um, it, it was such a good um, 
a good operation and, and, a, and a good feeling. You know, you, you were working at your peak and you, you had it all under control, talking to all these people at the same time on different radios, flying around, marking the targets, getting shot at, and, um, you know, part of the game. Yeah, part of the game. Goodness gracious me. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask is when you first arrived, yellow smoke, red, uh, red smoke, uh, how did the Viet Cong know to let off the smoke, I wonder. What, what, how, well, there must have been a break in communications. No, what, no, well, they, no well, it was NVA and VC, they, they think, and, uh, well, they know. And, but they listen out on the command frequency. Uh, they so just that... dial up the command frequency. They, they know I'm on the way. And normally in Vietnam, they didn't shoot at the fact unless he was in contact with them. If you were just flying around, no one ever shot at you. It's only when you're in the battle that they used to shoot at you. So they're shooting at you with well, with with what sort of weaponry? Uh, well, I've, I've I've had golf balls golf balls go past my canopy. That's fifty caliber. They're tracers, golf yep. balls going past, up to fifty caliber. That's the best I've seen. But or, or, you know, rifles, just normal stuff. So in terms of again going back to the danger situation as a forward air controller, uh, I mean clearly if they've got in on the command channel they know who you are yes Would, wouldn't it be in their best interest i'm thinking to to target you and no one else oh yeah they try hard they, they do try hard especially dusk and dawn when you can see the traces you know they're shooting at you you can see the traces but during daylight you can't really see the tracer coming at you from the ground but you know they're shooting at you because the guy on the ground is telling you they're shooting at you and obviously that's the trick they want to knock the fac out of the sky so you can't control the guns. They'd have to get another fac in to get to control of the strikes and the guns again. So what was the casualty rate like as far as you're aware of air traffic forward air controllers? Um, overall, the Americans lost 220 forward air controllers. Goodness gracious. They were shot down and accidents and so on. What the about Australians, the Australians, we didn't lose anybody. We, uh, we had one guy shot down uh, and he was recovered by chopper. But um, that's about it. Uh, oh, we had other airplanes with holes in them, but no one was shot down. No one, no Australian was killed. Quite an amazing role, Ken. Uh, mm. uh, what, what sort of training went into preparing you? Well, uh, obviously my uh, past experience of fighter flying, you know, you had to be, I, 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 see, the Americans ran into trouble because they, they, all the facts supporting the US Army had to be fighter pilots. And all the Australians who went there were fighter pilots because we could speak the language, we understood how fighters worked and so on, that was, that was the theory. But the Americans ran out of fighter pilots and so they had to recruit bomber pilots, transport pilots, give them a quick F4 course and call them fighter pilots and send them over. And if they survived, they, they eventually became pretty well, you know, got good at the game. But some of them didn't survive, they didn't have time. So what were they flying as forward air controllers? Oh, OV-10, O-1, O-2. Again, the, the Bronco. They, yeah, yeah, the Bronco, yes. But they didn't have, you know, I don't know how to put it, the fighter pilot reflexes or the fighter pilot training all their careers. They had two weeks of fighter, fighter pilot training. Right. Which isn't the same. So therefore, the Australian, the Royal Australian Air Force's training regime 
was significant in preparing you, Ken, for the role that you took on? Oh, absolutely superb. I, w I, I wouldn't have survived without that sort of training because I saw Americans die because they didn't have that training. Yeah. So can you relate any of your other memories and experiences whilst in Vietnam, what, not in the plane, but on the ground? Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I was fortunate in the hooch. I had a bed next to the door that, you, that led to the bunker. So when the rockets flew over, which they often did because we were out in the bush, um, we'd roll out of bed, down the stairs and into the bunker. But um, on a moonlight night, you could look up through our hooch, through the roof and see the, see the moonlight because our roof was peppered with shrapnel holes because we used to get rockets and mortars and stuff coming. Oh, the best one. Oh, that's right. I was going on an early morning start mission and I'm driving the old Jeep down the road to go to the airfield and the mortars started raining in on the road coming towards me. I could see the mortars hitting and coming towards me. So I jumped out of the Jeep into the ditch and the mortar hit in front of the Jeep and behind the Jeep and kept going down the road and um, missed me and didn't damage the Jeep. Got in the Jeep, ran to the, or drove to the uh, airfield, got in the aeroplane, got one turning and they started uh, to, to come in on the airfield. Mortars were hitting the airfield. And so the ground crew out the front was looking a bit scared, so I, was, I, I pissed him off. I said, go, go for the bunker. He ran. I started up, taxied, and I said to, like a, a tower, Sidewinder 3-2, ready for takeoff. Uh, negative 3-2, uh, we're under attack. You can't, the airfield's closed. I said, I said, bugger that. And I just rolled on the runway, firewalled the throttles and took off. And at 10,000 feet, I relaxed. What was the, the, the core of the spirit like among other RAAF personnel whilst in Vietnam? I mean, you must have swapped stories and swapped experiences. Oh, good. What was that good. like? Yeah, good, good. I think everyone, well, everyone I used to talk to was, was I think, pleased to be um, conducting operations and, and using their knowledge and expertise of their career to some good effect because, you know, the communists were bad bastards. And they still are. Yeah. So I have no no worries about participating in that war, given, and given the situation at the time. Did you compare in your own mind and your own thoughts? Did you compare your experience in the Indonesian confrontation with Vietnam? Because in Vietnam, it's hot for you, but it wasn't necessarily in in the Indonesian situation. No, no. The, we we used to deploy to Ubon in Thailand. You heard about seventy nine squadron in Ubon. Go tell us. Okay, well, uh, we had a squadron up there or a detachment up there that guarded the uh, airfield for the F-4 bombing into North Vietnam, Ubon. So we were on strip alert in Ubon too, uh, to act as uh, air defence for Ubon. And so again, we were there with uh, rocket, with, with sidewinders and cannon, on alert, ready to go. And we were scrambled a few times, but it was only commercial airlines cutting the corners of the country, so we didn't shoot anyone down. But we used to guard the airfield so the F-4s could fly uh, there and back uh, to, to North Vietnam. Um, and uh, U-Bon felt more operational than Butterworth did, uh, that's for sure. What What is your most cherished memory of your years, of that, of that set of years? Not your whole career, but just that set of years. Oh, what do you mean? Oh, yeah. facking in Vietnam, forward yes. air controlling in Vietnam. Yes. Yes. Oh, that was the pinnacle of my career. 
because you go back to Australia, you fly Mirages again, ho hum, you know, Mickey Mouse compared <laughs> to Vietnam. <laughs> yeah, and memories today, uh, when I know in New South Wales there's Vietnam Veterans Day that's coming up in August, um, is that something that that you're always prepared to be involved in? Is that or do you want to forget about it? Oh, no, we usually do. We, we, we get involved in that here in Coffs Harbour. And the, the other brothers that and sisters, no doubt, who've been involved there with you, is there a close bond that can oh, yeah, only yeah. create? Sure, sure. The ones, all, all the Australians who were facts in Vietnam, we, we certainly have a, a, a fac association with the Americans and we do have reunions and we get together with the Americans as well. So uh, it's, it's, a, it's a good setup and it's, uh, it's, it's, we enjoy it. So you joined, you enlisted in 1959. When did you retire? 1980. That's a long and illustrious career, Ken. 20 years. And your DFC, did that come about as a result of Vietnam? Yes. I, I described to you the, the airstrike that I thought was the most taxing and continuous, but I won the DFC for another airstrike where I had two lerps, lerp parties under attack and I was keeping everyone at bay flying between the two lerp parties uh, and, and we got them all out alive, which was, which was good. Yeah, what, please explain what a LERP party is. Oh, SAS, Long Range Reconnaissance Patrol in American terms. Yep. It's the same as the SAS. A team okay. of five or six guys in the jungle observing. And but all, Americans didn't like observing, they liked to shoot. So they'd always be in trouble. And when you got to them, they were always in a shooting thing. Yeah. And and what was the relationship like between the Australian and the American. Oh, great, great. They, they wish they had more of us. Yeah, we have a we have a pretty noble record, do we not? Absolutely, with the Americans, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, I, I might come back to Vietnam in just a moment, but I'm, I'm interested to know about your your nomad experience and introducing three of them into service. How, how did that come about, and why was it important? Uh, well, that was when Customs decided to introduce aircraft into, into Customs Service uh, for the anti-smuggling um, role, mainly. Um, I, whilst I was in the Air Force, I participated with Customs in an operation up in Cedar Bay, North Queensland, where we discovered a plantation. And uh, I directed the ground force into the bad guys and I marked them with smoke grenades and burnt down a few hooches and we took a heap of people to Cooktown next day at the court. Uh, so I had worked with customs. Um, so I was get I was at this at this point I was working in joint intelligence organisation and um, it was pretty boring, I've got to say. Anything in Canberra like that was pretty boring. And uh, the opportunity came up uh, for, for this, this position. Um, Customs um, advertised it in the Gazette. They're looking for someone to introduce their aircraft into service. And I thought with my experience with Customs, I, I might have a shoe in. So I applied and got the job. What is a Nomad? It's an, an aeroplane made in Australia, an Australian aeroplane, twin engine turboprop, high wing, 
it's, it's virtually a little, little passenger plane, if you like. But it had a very good short field landing capability. And so that meant customs could operate this aeroplane into remote airstrips in Queensland mainly, where the smugglers were coming in from New Guinea, and they still are, in light aircraft landing at remote airfields. And they were going to use the Nomad to deploy their people and get round quickly and try and nab a few smugglers. And did you have the responsibility also of training the pilots of those Nomads? Or? No, the pilots uh, were uh, contractors, but the crew were customs. So I, I had the responsibility of um, uh, training the observers, radar observers and visual observers, uh, designing the SOPs, the checklists, and I ended up getting them fitted out with Air Force gear, Air Force flying suits and all the rest of it, trying to make it look as professional as possible. And uh, I did that for four years. Got the got the nomads into service for customs with people to man the aeroplanes. Well, they certainly do a very good job on what is an incredible coastline for Australia. Yes, yes, yes. In 1980, I wrote a paper to customs, uh, to the uh, uh, boss, Depsec, and I said, uh, because of all these reasons, we should be running Coast Watch because customs had 60 bases, had communications, VHF, UHF, HF, vehicles and aeroplanes and, and boats. I said, we, we should be running Coast Watch. But I wrote this big paper and it came back and said, no, we're not interested in running Coast Watch. Eight years later, they were directed by the government to run Coast Watch. And 27 years later, they became um, who they are today, Border Force. And armed, I, I said to them, they should be armed as well. You, you mentioned being in Canberra with the Joint Intelligence Organisation as obviously being boring. How did you get involved in that? Oh, I was a posting. Oh, no, I've been, I've been you promoted. Didn't hmm? You didn't choose, it was chosen. No, no, it was chosen for me. <laughs> Maybe they thought I needed to brush up on intelligence or something. I'm always interested when a person is promoted to a, a higher rank to know what they see that role is. How do you see the wing commander's role within the Royal Australian Air Force? Of course, you were one. Yeah, cer certainly not behind a desk, that's for sure. Out, out in the field with the troops. So does that happen too often, does it, that a, a person uh, is... Yes, well, mm, well it's, it's, I suppose it's Air Force policy, it's progression. If you want to become a senior officer, if you want to become an Air Commodore or Air Vice Marshal, then you've got to do all this um, desk work, if you like, uh, to get the experience and qualifications so you can be promoted further and get further and further away from the action. How important is it, has it been, that the Australian has developed that relationship that even though Wing Commander or whatever, you still are in touch with those who are not yet there in terms of training, in terms of relationships? Well, hopefully you've got the experience, say, in a squadron to um, uh, ensure that your training, rather than just mechanical, is more warlike. And that was my aim all through my uh, tenure there. I wanted to make uh, training not like a classroom, but, but training which was more warlike and we did that in three squadron in Malaya and that was that was good we got them got them going pretty well there but that's another big story <laughs> yeah how do you rate australia's preparation for an air force personnel compared to other nations without specifying another nation where would you put us up the top i reckon i reckon based on my experience and based on observing other aircrew 
I reckon we've got to be very close to the top. How have you seen the development of cooperation across the defence groups within Australia, Army, Navy, Air Force, develop over your career? Abysmal. As far as I, one of my jobs when I was in Canberra was to write um, SOPs for uh, joint operations between Army, Navy, Air Force, and and I, I've said this all along. Given our size, we should be um, operational and acting like the Marines, the U.S. Marines do. Instead, we've got a blue water navy, an, an air force that wants to control space, and an army that wants to roam around continents. And, and it's very hard to get all these people together uh, and, and conduct joint operations. See, my experience with joint operations is, a, is another, another thing that really worried me when I was in, in the forces. Communications never worked, never worked. We went to Showwater Bay many times and uh, communications would always break down, always let us down. And uh, that was a problem. I, I should be able to, as a forward air controller at Rockhampton on an exercise, I should be able to call up an Australian warship off the coast and say, give me naval gunfire support now. But that would take uh, half a day to get through all the communications and, and talk to the right people and because the Navy, the officers don't operate the ships the men do, and the, and, the, and the officers give orders. So by the time you go through this chain of command, the fight's over, you've lost. <laughs> just, okay, just explore a little bit for me what, what the Marines' example. Well, Why are they successful? Right. What do they do that we don't? They're one force, and you could never see this happening in, in our force setup, but, but the Marines have, have an air, army, and Navy, if you like, who transport them all around. But they're a joint force and they operate together. They, they never go anywhere without air support and they always have air support when the Marines are there and hit the beach. But we, we should be able to operate. We're so small, this is our problem, we're so small. And uh, with the threat of China looming, it's another, another real problem for us. But you try and get the Army, Navy and Air Force acting as a joint force right now. Ask the Army, when was the last time the Air Force dropped bombs, real bombs, 200 metres in front of their troops on the ground in, in dugouts? You know what the answer will be? No, I don't. Never. So how are you, how are you going to train people if you can't conduct you know, live firing exercises and, and uh, get them used to the... You know what they would expect. In I would have. I would have thought, given that we are so small, I would have thought that it would have been an easy task to create that inter-cooperation co rather than lack of. No, because each force, the Army, Navy, Air Force, are a separate identity with their own chains of command, with their own generals, and they all closely guard their patch. And you, you've, you might get the generals to talk in Canberra together. But uh, what you need to be able to do is get the pilots talking and the facts talking to the grunt on the ground and the, and the, and the ship out at sea to get naval gunfire support. But, you know, it, it, I, would, I would just love to put on an exercise, walk into camera and say, let's do this tomorrow. No way, no way. It'd take a month to organise. Ken, you've retired. Um, you've obviously mm. retired from the... Sorry, you've retired from the Air Force. But you do have a business in Coffs Harbour. What does that involve? Oh, we did have a business. Uh, it was uh, a disposal store, uh, camping and disposals. We had that for 23 years. 
what you we as in you and your wife or your family or yeah wife and family yes yes we ran it success in fact we sold it we retired and uh, it's still there and it's working successfully quite it's very good business and as a former RAAF personnel why did you choose Coffs Harbour to the opportunity came up and plus it's a nice place to live one thing about this chat that I really have appreciated is the fact that you've made, because I've heard people talk about forward air controllers in a couple of other interviews, and I've been a bit slow on the uptake and haven't asked them to explicate that, but you have, and from what you've said, of all of my understanding of the war in Vietnam, be it the Battle of Coral Balmoral or Long Tan or whatever, uh, yeah. th there isn't one event where it is one person one person who is directing, who was the circus master, who was directing the whole shebang, but that role was you. That was me, yes. And and in fact, I've got to say, um, if you talk to a guy called Pete Larrard one day, uh, he will tell you how difficult it was for him to operate as a fac with the army at Vang Tau. Not the same. The army's attitude to forward air controlling and air support is completely different to the American attitude. The American attitude is, help me with what you've got now. Uh, but the Australians, I'm afraid, you know, we're not, not as obliging. Well, look, congratulations again on being awarded the DFC, even though you think it was for the wrong, the wrong forward air control event. Oh, no. Well, no, that was just one typical strike. We, we used to have uh, airstrikes like that every second day. The Australians had no idea, the Australian Army had no idea what the American Army was doing and how often they used to get in, in trouble uh, and we'd have to you know, help Ken, them out. Ken, you're a remarkable individual. It's been a real privilege and an honour to chat with you and thank you for making something clear that I should be able to take on earlier. And as part of the history of the RAAF, you are to be congratulated, sir. So thank you for your time. Yep, thanks very much. Globally, the RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day, contributing to coalition operations, peacekeeping and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. It has a history of endeavour and sacrifice, which is one in a place in the hearts of all Australians and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies. The RAAF will never tarnish its record. It carries on in the proud tradition of Per Adua Ad Astra. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. Produced by Air Force Association New South Wales, which is a registered charity that focuses on the well-being of Air Force veterans and their families. If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.